Okay, good morning everyone. Want to get going? Because uh, we are going to eat up all of our time today. I had a front watch. Uh, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we simply thank you for Jesus. Lord, we think of those disciples who walked up to him one day and said to the disciples, show us Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as we go through these days, as we meet together in various, uh, in various groups, that at the end of the day, you would show us Jesus. That in seeing him, we would understand more of ourselves, more of this world, more of what you have offered us in him. We just thank you for the splendor of the gospel, the wonders of your grace. I pray that you would give us a mind to understand and eyes to see and ears to hear as we look at your word. What it means to be a people who live in this world, a world that perpetually stains us. And what it means to be your people. So guide our time together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I learned yesterday that you guys are sort of the, it's either the lucky ones or the unfortunate ones, depending on how you want to look at it. Because I spent, I sort of don't know how I was telling Ryan is in my room. Um, I don't know how to not go on the field and sort of leave it all, all on the field. And by the time the second class comes in here, I don't have anything left. So you guys get about 80% of me, and the next group gets about 20% of me. Um, and it's just because I'm not used to doing two classes in a row, and I'm not going to learn how to do that while I'm here. So just the way that it is. Um, we're going to be looking uh, at a passage in 2 Kings chapter 19, if you want to turn there. Before we start, I want to begin by just asking you a question. And I want you to sit there and in a moment of honesty and personal transparency, I want you to ask this question, to answer this question to yourself. When do you pray? When do you tend to pray and why do you pray? I want you to answer that question to yourself. When do you pray? And why do you pray? We're going to be exploring that. If only one of the reasons we ought to explore that is because as Christians, we are called people who call on the name of the Lord. The church of God is called, uh, Mike Jesus said that the church would be called a house of prayer. And if there's one thing that ought to describe us as God's people, it's the fact that we are a praying people. And I want to explore some of that. I, I sort of want to push us in some new directions today. Um, as you go to some of these other classes, as you go here, Barry, as you listen to the evening speaker, as you go to the gospel classes, they're going to really be giving you some real fundamental, solid foundations behind your praying, behind your living, what it means just to live the Christian life in this world. You need to understand the things that they're teaching you in all these classes. And I'm sort of leaving that to them. Where I want to go is I want to sort of push you in some different directions. I'm hoping that maybe you would go down the, this hill, or yeah, I guess we're at 7,000 feet, this, this mountain, and that you would take with you a sense of urgency, a sense of confidence, and a sense of expectation in your praying. That's really my longing for you, that something would drive you to pray beyond a schedule like this, you're going to go down this mountain, and John's not going to be there. David's not going to be there. Your counselors aren't going to be there. This enlarged group of people aren't going to be there. And I think that one, thing, one of the things that will press you to pray and that will make you a person who calls on the name of the Lord is that you find a sense of urgency, a sense of confidence, and even more, a sense of expectation in your praying. 
And I think without those things, if you don't go down the hill with those things, what you'll find is that you had a praying experience this week. You experience some things, you'll go down the hill, and you'll even talk about the things that you experienced up here. But the thing that you won't take down the hill with you is a life of prayer. Unless we can find a sense of urgency, confidence, and expectation in your praying. So that's where we're going today. Um, and with that, we're going to read this story, one of my favorite stories in 2 Kings chapter 18. Let me paint the picture here. We're reading about a, a great king. I was talking about him over breakfast with some guys. Uh, every once in a while, uh, D.L. Moody, uh, not D.L. Moody, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in uh, England not all that long ago, said he, used to, he loved reading biographies because he said, I live in a land of spiritual pygmies, and every once in a while it's just great to read about a great man. And uh, we get a chance to read about a great person of God in the man of, in this person of Hezekiah. We're told about Hezekiah early on in chapter 18. We're introduced to him. We're told in verse 5 that Hezekiah was a man he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Hezekiah was a distinct man of God. They want us to know that. We're told in verse 7 that the Lord was with him. Hezekiah sort of has some of the misfortune of coming to his reign towards the end of, of really the time of Judah. Judah is going to continue on for at least another hundred years or so. He's actually king at the time that Israel to the north falls to the Assyrians. And is, uh, the Assyrians have gone, and if you remember, Israel had been divided. There were ten tribes to the north, and there were two tribes to the south. And Assyria had already gone and wiped out the northern tribes. And now Assyria was knocking on the door of Jerusalem. They'd already marched through the land. They had taken down all the outer strong, uh, strongholds, that they, the fortifications, all these sort of fortified cities that they had built up. And now Hezekiah and probably 20,000 soldiers are held up inside the walls of Jerusalem and surrounding this city are probably 200,000 Assyrian soldiers. And accompanying these Assyrian soldiers is a guy that would really be the press secretary to the king of Assyria. And he's, kind of, he's called the Rabshakeh. He's the press secretary. He does the talking for the king. And we're going to pick up this story. It's sort of a long story, but it's a great story. We're going to pick it up in verse... Uh, where are we going to pick it up? Verse 19. So if you want, read along with me. And the Rabshakeh, that's a title, it's an office title, said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all those who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part, to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants, when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to him, 
As my master sent me to speak these words to your, to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Then the Rabshakeh stood, stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine, and each one his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his, hand, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are their gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of all these other people, right? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should now deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people of Israel, but the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Just going to read three more verses. As soon as, the, as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to pull to bring them forth. Word of God. We're going to read a little bit more here uh, in a bit, here as we get towards the end. But there's some things I want to point out to you. I want you to notice about the urgent situation that Hezekiah was in. I mean, this is a desperate situation, right, that he's in. He's being warned of really some devastating kinds of things. And so three things I want you to notice about this, this story here. And the first one is that the situation there that they were confronting was way beyond hope. It was way beyond any kind of hope, right? He has 20,000 people inside the city. There are 200,000 elite Assyrian soldiers on the outside who have already marched. These are battle-tested soldiers who have gone through the land, who have decimated all these other nations, including Israel, which was much larger to the north. And they're outside these walls. And we actually read later on in chapter 19 that not only have they been going through the land and defeating them, they're devoting them to destruction. Do you remember that from the book of Joshua, when they would go into a city like Jericho, and they would devote it to destruction? What would happen when they would do that? What was left? Nothing. Every, it was the people, everything was devoted to destruction, unless some of it was saved for the Lord. And what the Syrians are saying is, that's what we're doing. We're going through the land, and we're wiping out every living thing. And we're going to do that to you, unless you abide by our terms. So this situation just seems to get worse and worse, and there seems to be no hope. I love even what the Rav Shaka says. Look, even if I gave you 2,000 horses, if we helped you in this battle a little bit by giving you 2,000 horses, and somehow you managed to find 2,000 guys in your city who could sit and ride on those horses to come out against us, if I took my weakest captain you would have no chance of defeating my weakest captain. 
That's how bad your situation is. It's like going on the football team and you, you, you dress your A team and the other team puts their, not their B, C, D, but they put like their F team on the field and they say, we can decimate your A team. That's sort of what he's saying here. You have no hope here. And I think this is an important, the picture that's painted here is really important for you and I. It's really important for you and I as we go down this hill. Because as you go down this hill, and as you respond to the call to follow Jesus, Jesus is going to perpetually lead you into situations like this. If you follow Jesus, I used to wake up when I lived in Oregon to a radio program, and it just irked me. This guy would say, every day at 2 in the morning, I was working at UPS, he would say, good morning, it's a sunny day in Jesus. It's not always a sunny day in Jesus when you wake up, and you know that. Follow Jesus, and Jesus will often lead you to a place where you, there seems to be no hope. He will lead you to a place where you will come to the end of yourself, the end of your personal resources, the end of your humanity, the absolute limits of what you think you can bear as a human being. If you follow Jesus, he will actually lead you there. And there's just countless studies, and we'll see some of these, where Jesus does that. And if you've followed him for a while, you know that. And I think there's very specific ways that we experience that, and we've been talking about that uh, so far this week. And I want you to think about three ways that Jesus leads us to the end of ourselves. Number one, follow Jesus and you're going to bear the stain of other people in your life. Hezekiah, as this is, as this is taking place, walks through the city. And he sees people losing hope. He sees women who don't have the strength to give birth to their kids. And he's bearing the weight, the stain of these lives. Follow Jesus. John talked about the woman at the well. Engage people. Anybody. Let your expose your life to somebody else, and that life will always stain you. And as Jesus <coughs> were called to do, you'll begin to bear the burdens of other people. And it will weigh on you. And you'll share in the sufferings of Christ because the things that you'll be exposed to and other people will sometimes be things that will be so big and so great and so primal, so deep into who they are that you'll bear the weight of it. Very often as a pastor, I feel like I meet people and they're stuck in a spiritual, emotional bear trap. And I bear the weight of it. And it weighs on you. And you can see this happening with Hezekiah as he walks through the city. I was having lunch just yesterday with Ryan and someone called me from my church. In fact, I'm going to read a prayer request later on and an answer to one. And he called me, a great, just sort of a great family. He says, Rick, I just got punched in the stomach. My partner has been stealing from me for the last couple weeks. He's taken $10,000. I have $10,000 in bills that are due. I have $7,000 due right now or I lose the company. He's got a brand new baby. He's a big man. And, uh, he calls me, he's weeping. And uh, I can't whip out $10,000. I'm in New Mexico. Follow Jesus, and you're going to expose yourself to other people. And you're going to bear their burdens. And you're going to see them lose strength. And it's going to stain you. And you're going to bear that. And there's going to be a sense of urgency that emerges out of that. But that's quickly going to be followed by a sense of your own stain that you're going to bear. Because you're going to look at that situation, and not only you're going to see their difficulties and the pain of their life and their brokenness, and the troubles that they're trying to deal with. But then you look at your own self and you look at your personal resources and you realize, I have no capacity, I have no ability to address that need. There was nothing Hezekiah could have done. There was no strategy he could have implemented. He had no personal resource as he saw this woman struggling and this man losing despair and this person going into depression. There was nothing he could say. There was nothing he could do that would meet that need. And you feel the stain of your own inability. 
And you know that. If you've counseled someone, and someone's sharing their soul with you, they're exposing themselves to you, you know the burden of your own limit, of how limited you are, of how unable you are. Paul writes to the church of Second of Corinthians. He writes to the church of Second Corinthians. And he says to them in chapter 3, who is sufficient for these things? Paul's living his life and he comes, he says, all that I have is my weakness. I'm completely insufficient for all the stuff that God has called me to. And the further you go in, the more you engage people, not only will you see the stain of their life and will you be exposed to that, but you're going to be exposed to your own limitations. You're going to be exposed to your own sinfulness. And you're going to bear the weight of that. And there's a sense of urgency in that. Not just what you see in other people, but what you find in yourself. I've been called to lead a group of people, and I so often feel like Moses. He says, Lord, I can't do this. Or King Solomon, he says, Lord, I don't know my going out from my coming in. You've promised to send your spirit to be the spirit who leads us, so lead me, because I can't lead these people. I have barely over 100 people, and I don't feel, I feel completely inadequate to lead and shepherd and pastor these people. I don't know what I'd do with 500, 5,000. I'll never have that many, but I don't know what I would do with them if I had them. Thirdly, you're also at times going to bear the weight of God's glory. One of the things that I find difficult at times is I meet with people, and we're going to see this in a moment with Hezekiah as we can sort of wrap this up. People who are struggling with deep sin, deep issues in their life. I live in the, what is called the gay ghetto of Long Beach. Uh, we actually have more homosexuals in our neighborhood than per cap per area than actually in uh, San Francisco. Everywhere you go, uh, that's sort of what you see. It just becomes common. You actually, when we moved there, it was shocking. Now it's normal. Uh, it's in the high school. It's everywhere we go. And I, we have people who are dealing with that issue in our church, uh, quite a few actually. And sometimes that it's not just a different sexual orientation. That is a path that leads to a very dark, deep, shallow place. And I meet with some of these people, and they're telling me their stories. And one hand, I'm feeling for them, and I'm feeling the burden of their life on one hand. And secondly, I'm feeling my complete inability to address them and to speak into that primal longing that they have sometimes that's very deep inside of them. But then thirdly, one of the things that I'm actually grappling with is the glory of Jesus. I'm wanting Jesus to be seen for who he truly is. I'm wanting the glory of God to be magnified, and I feel these tensions. I don't want to just say, it's okay. Live that way. Be happy. Because I'm wanting Jesus to be seen. I'm wanting his grace to be magnified. And I'm feeling the weight of the glory of God. And when you encounter God because he's a person, one of the things that ought to stain you is the person of Jesus and his weightiness and his excellence. It's what you're singing about when we sing tonight in the service. So many of those songs speak about the weightiness of God, the excellence of his glory and the extent of his love that's so profound and so big and so directed at you. And because we've encountered a person... We ought to be stained by his glory. That's actually how Paul describes what happens when we become a Christian. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, look, something happens that's actually similar to seeing a piece of art or listening to a great piece of music. When you hear a great piece of music, you're captivated by it, right? If you like music. And it stirs you a little bit. When you go out, if you went on the 14-mile hike and you go up to the top of the hill... And when you get up there, if there's any life left in you, you look out there and you can sort of appreciate the beauty, right? And what happens? It moves you. Paul says something very similar happens when we look at Jesus. When we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When we come to the gospel, it's like looking at a painting. It's like hearing a great piece of music. And it moves us so much by the excellence of Jesus and the glory of God 
that you're just not stirred a little bit. You're moved to the point by the Spirit of God to transformation. It's not just a momentary experience. It's a transformational experience that makes you a different person. And one of the things that ought to stain us is the weight of God's glory. And there ought to be a sense of urgency inside of you that people would see Jesus for who he is. Besides the weight of the, of the burdens of others and the weight of your own stain. There's a lot more we can say about that, but I'm just sort of going to move along here. So one of the things I want you to see about the urgent situation that Hezekiah was in is that he was in a situation that was beyond hope, just completely. But then secondly, the urgency of this situation, because the reasonableness of trusting in God was being called into question. The Rabshakeh comes and he says... On what is, are you resting this great trust of yours? That's what he says to the people. It's a great scene. You have the Rabshakeh. This is like an epic movie, really. You have this Rabshakeh outside the wall, and you can just picture on the walls of Jerusalem all the soldiers, all the mighty men, the people of, of valor, and just the people in general on the walls listening to this guy talk. Uh, there was a scene sort of like that in, uh, I think it's Troy. He comes out to the, you know, you have, who is that guy, Sam? Did you see Troy? Sure I did. Who, uh, it's Hector. Hector, when Hector fights uh, Achilles. Achilles. I'm, I'm thinking Brad Pitt. That's a Brad Pitt. <laughs> Brad Pitt, Achilles comes in. He's standing outside the city walls. That's sort of the rap shack, except for it's not just Achilles. There's 200,000 people behind him, right? And he says, on what are you resting this trust of yours? And he says to the people on the walls, he says, look, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Are words power for war? Hezekiah is having you trust in words, and he says, are those words going to defeat this army? Is this spiritual verbiage about your God going to wipe us out? It's futile, right? And he says something profound. He says, look, we have gone nation to nation to nation to nation. Every single time those people have called on their God, and we have showed in every single one of those situations that religion is a placebo. What's a placebo? What's that? <coughs> it's a fake remedy. You see these in medical tests where they'll give the real prescription to one person and they'll give a pill that looks like the real thing that's filled with water to somebody else and that's called a placebo. It looks like the real thing but it's got nothing in it. And this Rav Shackett says, look, all these nations have called on their God, and in every single instance, we have annihilated them. Not once has religion worked. Not once has their God showed up. More importantly, we just came from Israel. They worship a very similar God, although the heart of the people of Israel had left how much Judah knew of that is probably uncertain. But they had just wiped out Israel to the north, who supposedly were supposed to, at least, worship the same God. And they're saying, look, religion doesn't work. Your verbiage is not going to deal with that immense problem. That's what the Rabshak is saying, right? Like when you face the stain of other people's lives, when you face insurmountable situations, families that are on their last leg, marriages that are breaking down, and you walk into a situation and the thing that you have for them is words, so often what you're going to feel is like, this is foolish. You're going to feel like it's just verbiage. It's just language. And very often, if you don't feel that way, at times other people are going to make you feel that way for just because you're calling people to faith. And it's sort of the unreasonableness of trusting in God. And God's ways will be challenged, and they'll just seem to be backwards. And that's what the Rabshak is saying. Look, your language, your language of faith, your calling on God is not the thing that is going to defeat this army. 
And we sometimes feel that because we get in these desperate things and the first place that we don't run to is to our knees and or to the church and or to the community of faith. We want action. We want something that, that's got shoe leather on it that's going to go out there and defeat that. We don't want language. We don't want Bible verses. I mean, I, I confront this so often with people seven and eight years older than you who are in these dark places and they want to meet with me but then when meeting with me, they don't want me to speak the things out of God's word to them. They actually want me to hand them something or to personally fix something for them. And what they're telling me really is what the Rabshaka says, is Rick, your language cannot deal with my immense big situation. It's too big for God. It's too big for faith. It's too big for your language. That's really what they're saying. So the reasonableness of trusting God is being called into question. And then thirdly, um, the faith of the people or the strength of the people was failing. You know, I, I just dawned on me. I, I'm going to back up for a second. Sometimes when, when talking to us, one of the things I end up telling them is actually that they're right. language of our language, the language of the promises of God, the language of what God has spoken to us in Jesus, what God has to say, asking people to trust God is ludicrous. If you have 20,000 people in your city and you're facing 200,000 outside, to call people to simply trust God is ludicrous. It's absurd, and you need to recognize that except Jesus rose from the dead. Except Jesus rose from the dead, it is ludicrous. It's absurd. It's asinine. If Jesus rose from the dead, everything changes. That's the game changer. And now that's the wisdom that comes from God that defeats the wisdom of this world. That's an important, that's an important point. The reason trusting God is not ludicrous is because God acted in human history and raised Jesus from the dead. And so God's ways are not foolish. Apart from that, if we toss out the resurrection, all this stuff is absurd. Everything you've heard this week is absurd. It's ludicrous. It's a bunch of noisy gongs, clanging cymbal, jettison it. If you're jettisoning everything that you're hearing, and as some of you probably are, you're questioning it, what you have to question before you question all that is the resurrection. You've got to be able to explain that away. And until you do, you really can't speak about these things. They all hinge on the resurrection. It's a little side note for you. So the people, the people or the faith and the strength of the people were failing. It's like what you see happening at the Red Sea. God has redeemed the people. They've come out of Egypt. They've come now, and they, they come before a sea, and the sea is unpassable. So they turn around, and they see the army of Egypt coming, and it's undefeatable. So they're in between an un unpassable sea and an undefeatable army, and they lose heart. The strength starts fading in the people. It's exactly what happens here. And let me say, right here is an important point, and we're going to move on to Hezekiah's response, and it's vital that we understand how Hezekiah responds here. Because right here is the point where so many people grow up in the Christian church and leave. They see the impassable sea, they see the undefeatable army, they lose hope, all of this seems unreasonable, and they leave. They check out, and they check out right at the point where God can show up and demonstrate his reality. I want you to see Hezekiah's response. Hezekiah, until we're back in the, in the book, Hezekiah chapter 19, verse 14. He takes the letter written by the Rabshakeh and he heads into the temple. And he, uh, Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, 
enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib. He's the king of Assyria. Which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. And have cast their gods into the fire. He says, it's true. It's all happened. For they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Man, there is so much in Hezekiah's prayer here. Hezekiah does what we should do when we get stained. Hezekiah does something counterintuitive. Everybody around him has to be pressing Hezekiah to get up on the walls, to start calling for orders, to start leading, to start coming up with strategies and plans. And Hezekiah sort of goes against that flow and walks into the temple because that's where he knows the true battle is going to be waged. It's going to be in the temple. And let me tell you, the kingdom of God is perpetually and constantly counterintuitive. You want to save your life, you're going to lose it. Jesus said, are you anxious about your money? Give it away. That's all counterintuitive. Wait, I'm struggling with money and you're telling me to give it away. That makes no sense. Jesus, that's where I show up. You want to save your life, you've got to lose it. That makes no sense. I'm trying to save my life. It's counterintuitive. You've got to give it away. Hezekiah, everybody around him is saying, Hezekiah, get on the walls, arrange this thing, lead us forward. And he knows the thing that he has to do is against the grain, it's going to be against the prevailing opinion, and he walks into the temple to fight, and he's going to fight by faith. And he begins to pray in there. And one of the things that he prays is, says, Lord, you need to deliver us. You are the Lord, our God, our deliverer. That's what you did at the Red Sea. You're the God, Romans 4, Paul talks about that, who creates possibilities where there is none. When the, we are against hope, you create hope. You're the God of the resurrection. You're the God who does the unthinkable and the impossible. You can break into all against hope situations. And he says, this situation is bigger than us. This is not just about Jerusalem anymore. This is not about God saving his people in that little city. He's saying, how else are they going to know out there that we serve the true God? How else is this world going to know that Christianity is the true religion over and against everything else unless you keep your promises to be our God, our deliverer, to be the God who is with us Hezekiah is feeling the weight of the glory of God. He's also bearing the stain of his people. He's bearing the stain of his own inadequacy. And he brings us all to a focal point in his praying. He says, God, this is all about you. It's about the world seeing that you are the true God. And so he grabs the character of God and the promises of God and begins to pray them. The same thing you see in the book of Acts and Acts chapter 4. They're going out. They've, been, they've confronted opposition. They feel the weight of sharing the gospel. They feel their own inabilities. And they grab the promises of God and they say, God, you promised to bless this world. This will not happen unless you bless us. So bless us with your spirit so that the world might know that Jesus is the true God. This thing is bigger than us. And Hezekiah, this is going to have to be my, uh, I got 12 minutes. I think as Hezekiah prays, he does something. I want you to see one more passage. I want you to turn to Luke 11. I'm giving you a lot today, but this is my sort of last chance to talk with you in this kind of way. We'll wrap up with this last idea. I think Hezekiah is doing exactly what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 11. This is a passage many of you are familiar with. Something's happening here. Read in verse 1. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples came to him, and he said, Lord, teach us to pray. Get this. 
they're somewhere. Jesus with his disciples, and Jesus has been praying. And his disciples, maybe they've been praying with him. They've prayed before. They know what prayer is. They've prayed before. But Jesus starts praying. And he prays. And there's something about when Jesus prays that the disciples know. When he prays, I don't think I know how to pray. There's something about the way that he prays that's different from the way I pray. And it's humbling. And so they know, Lord, teach us to pray because there's something you're doing that we're not doing. The way you pray is not the way that we pray. And he says, so Lord, teach us to pray. And typically we answer that question the way Jesus answers that with the Lord's Prayer. And so Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer. And I think the Lord's Prayer only partially gets at what was really at what was driving that question. Because I don't think that Jesus merely prayed better content. I think that there was a way Jesus was praying that really captivated and, and knocked the disciples sort of back a bit. Because he gets at it in the next portion. So he gives them the Lord's Prayer, right? And then the bigger portion, which is his response, this is what he says. Verse 5. So we're in Luke 11, verse 5. Hang on with me. We're almost there. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I want you to look what Jesus says there in verse 8. He is saying, this is how you pray. This person came to his friend's house at night, and I want you to write this word down. I want you to learn this word. This is a word we never use. You'll, hardly, you'll probably never use it again, but I want you to learn this word. And Jesus says, this guy comes to his house, and he bangs on his door, and Jesus describes that with his impudence. Impudence. Let me tell you what impudence is. Impudence is a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Impudence is not just boldness. It's shamelessness. It's, it's praying without respect for the person who's in front of you is praying without modesty. And Jesus says, that's how you pray. Think about that. You're to pray without a, with a lack of sensitivity to what is proper, shameless and, bold, and filled with boldness, and without res due respect to who you're praying for, to, and without modesty. It's what you see Jacob doing when he's wrestling with God. It's impudence. When Moses is before Sinai and he has to go and he's supposed to lead the people into the land, of, uh, into the promised land, he prays with impudence. He says, God, I will not go unless you come with me. And what is he doing? He's praying with impudence. I think what Hezekiah is doing is he's bearing the weight and the stain of his people and his inabilities and the glory of God. He's on the ground, and he's pleading with impudence, shamelessly, coming into the throne room of God. And the thing that enables us to pray that way is a profound grasp of the gospel. The more you understand that in Christ, you have become his sons, sons and daughters. The more you see the greatness of the blood of Jesus, that however great your sins are, the blood of Jesus is greater. The more you recognize that, the more it will propel you to come, like he says in Hebrews 10, boldly to the throne of grace, that you might find help, you might find grace and mercy to help in time of need. 
But the thing that will cause you to pray with impudence is a sense of urgency. But it's also a sense of expectation that your God is there and that he's a God who answers. He's a God who keeps his promises. People, I think we're facing an epidemic in the church. I'm convinced of it, of faithlessness. That we live in a generation that's principally at a time, not your generation, we live in a time that I just, I'm just be, becoming more and more as convinced as described by faithlessness. And the reason I'm becoming so convinced of that is because I think one of the great barometers of faith is prayer. When we don't believe, we don't pray. And when we do believe, we do pray. When you pray, do you believe that you can move people through God? When you pray, do you believe you have the ear of the God who spun the planets into space? Do you pray, when you pray, do you believe that the God who gave his son for you will not also with him freely give you all things? We get into the situation that Hezekiah was in. And we actually listen to the Rabshakeh. It's just words. It's just words. And if we get to that point, what you're going to feel, if you're stained by other people, you're just going to feel despair because you can't do anything about it. And if you get in that situation and you realize your own inabilities, all you're going to feel is depression because you can't do anything about it. Even if you see the glory of Jesus, all that's going to become is abstraction because it doesn't actually connect with you. But if we, if we let the gospel, the gospel begins to soak in and the blood of Jesus begins to stain us, then we know that we have a God who hears us and a God who, is, who will answer. And my encouragement to you, and sort of the thing that I implore you to do, is to go down the hill and to recognize the urgent situation that you're in. To recognize that the people in your school and the people in your neighborhood won't believe unless our God shows up. And that Jesus has called us to pray his kingdom forward. Jesus in John 14 says, look, I've done great things, but you will do greater things. But he says, you'll do greater things as you call on me, as you pray. You're going to do greater things when you pray. personally burdened by the church today. Lord, you've called us to be a household of prayer, of people who call on the name of their God. And Lord, that just doesn't describe us. We're a household of many things, many good things, but very seldom and very rarely are we a household of prayer. We're losing our sense of urgency. We have no expectation. We lost, we've lost confidence in the blood. Lord, I pray that you would renew our faith, that you would give us a greater confidence in the blood of Jesus. That we would engage this world, that we would see the woman at the well, and that we would expose ourselves and feel their burdens. And that we would learn what it is to pray with impudence. To be a stained people who really believe and who can tell the stories of their God showing up. A God who does great things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was going to read, I, I got an email this morning. We have a prayer service at our church. That's a thing out of a, a century ago. So Mark, is his name, needed $7,000 by the end of the day. It came, we prayed, it came. He got ten. We had another gal who we were praying for. We just had all these situations. A gal who just been in a dark pit and prayed, and she's found freedom in Jesus last night. And I have all these things where prayers have been answered last night. We had another, our worship leader, uh, her husband, a deposit was lost at his work. And it was lost, and it was his responsibility. They couldn't afford it. And so we prayed about that situation. She says, Rick, we needed two, you know, basically $200. I went into my room and I found an envelope that you gave me probably a year ago. I had exact 
It was like 195 they needed. Had 195 dollars in it. Does your God do that? A month ago, I was driving home from the tax van with bad news. I owed a ton of money. And I said, Lord, I'm at the top of the food chain here in my church. I need a bonus, and I don't have anybody else to go to. I need $2,000, and I sort of need it right now. I got home, and there was a letter waiting on my table. God hadn't talked to in 10 years. said, I just came into a bunch of money, wanted to give $2,000 away. I thought you could really use it. 20 minutes later, does your God do that? Is that a freak of nature? Do things like that just happen? Or when people pray earnestly and they pray according to God's promises, does God show up and to deliver? Nothing will convince the people at your school that your God is the true God. Apologetics is great. I know some. At the end of the day, more so than your God is true and he's there and we're a people characterized by his presence and his power, he's a God who answers his prayer. So go home believing that. I guess you're dismissed. I've got five minutes. Hey, oh, hey, thank you. One last thing. So we, we're going to meet uh, tomorrow at 1, somewhere, one thirty, I guess. And we're going to meet as a group. And um, that's a time when we can answer questions. Look, some of you are, re you're hearing stuff, you're hearing stuff I'm saying, you're thinking, you, Rick, you, I just don't resonate with that at all. Or you're hearing something very saying, you're, you're hearing something in the evening time, you're just struggling with an issue, and you don't know how, what God has to say about that issue. This is a chance for us, sort of as, as leaders here, to address that. And we'd love to do that, but you need to just take the moment to fill out a sheet of paper, hand it, what, what do they do with it? I gave you twice as much as I ever give on a, on a Sunday, and, and you're high schoolers, and you know I'm slaying people. <laughs> but look, I believe this. I believe you guys are in an urgent situation. I believe that you guys are at a crossroads, and I believe you have to grapple with some big things. And I hope you just begin to grapple with them before you go down. So many of us can tell you stories. So many of us who are 10 and 20 years older than you of waiting to do that, of being stained by the wrong things, of being stained by that oil, that oil coming up <coughs> staining us instead of the gospel staining us. I just want to encourage you and exhort you to really begin to grapple with some of these things you know, before you even go down to hell. So. Oh my God. Do you find it difficult to pray? Yes. yes. So Rick, what happened? Which one? What happened to Sennacherib? They got defeated. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I'm supposed to come back to that chapter 19. You read about it, they all got wiped out. Who wiped them out? 